Well, again, good morning. So good to see you today. Great to have you, especially if this is your first time with us. Again, we want to say thank you so much for choosing to worship with us today. Uh, we're so glad you're here with us. Hey, let me pray for us before uh, we jump into our sermon this morning, okay? Let's pray. Father, we again thank you so much for our time this morning. Uh, God, the gathering of your people is an absolute gift. And uh, the fact that we can sing your praises together, open your word together, spend time in fellowship together, uh, and not as mere friends or mere acquaintances, but actually as family in Christ, Lord, that's a blessing to which a few other things can compare. Father, I want to pray for those of us this morning who may be feeling weary, discouraged, afflicted, heavy-hearted, stressed out, wore out, anxious. God, would you in your grace bring relief this morning? God, would you bring peace as we set our eyes on you and and your sovereign work over all things generally and and our individual lives specifically? But Father, I also want to pray for those of us this morning who may be apathetic, hard-hearted, indifferent, mistakenly comfortable, passive, lukewarm, unresponsive to you. Father, would you in your grace help us recognize it and repent of it? And Lord, would you stir us all to, to greater devotion and a deeper love for you this morning? So Lord, we look to your word now together as we do. Every week we gather for corporate worship and God, we ask that you would bless us, Father. Help us, Lord, humble ourselves before your true and authoritative word this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Well, I want to invite your attention to Luke chapter 19 this morning as we continue through our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. Last week, if you remember, we started chapter 19. And um, this was, of course, a passage when Jesus, he's on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. Because we know that when he gets there, eventually he's going to be arrested, put on trial, crucified, and of course, raised again from the dead. But before he gets to Jerusalem, he goes through the town of Jericho. And we saw that last week. Uh, There in Jericho, this encounter with a wee little man named Zacchaeus, right? And so we saw Jesus last week uh, pluck the fruit out of the sycamore tree in the person of Zacchaeus, uh, who repents of his practice of defrauding people, who vows to restore what he's taken fourfold. And, and then we saw the others grumble. Why would Jesus speak to, of all people, the chief tax collector? And we saw them grumble um, that, that Zacchaeus was getting attention. To which Jesus gives his personal mission statement that he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to save, to seek out and to save people like Zacchaeus. People like you and people like me. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off in Luke 19. We're going to pick up in verse 11, uh, and we're going to walk into this next section again. This is the last passage before he arrives in Jerusalem. Okay, so we'll just pick up in verse 11. So Luke writes for us here. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, and so here we find this context, right? So the context here is we're still in Jericho. 
He hasn't left town yet. He's still with the crowds. He's still with Zacchaeus. And Jesus has more to say to the people. But this time, he's actually going to be teaching them through a parable. Okay? And Luke tells us that that he gave this next parable for two very important reasons. First of all, because, again, he was near to Jerusalem. In other words, he's coming to the end of his earthly life and ministry. But also... Because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That is, they really thought that that when the Messiah came, this promised one in the Old Testament, who was going to come, who who was going to be the serpent crusher. Remember we saw that in Genesis 3. Uh, This one who was going to come, he was going to come victoriously. That when he came, he was going to overthrow oppressive Rome and establish the kingdom of God through the kingdom of Israel right away. But again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and his time in Jerusalem is going to look anything but victorious. And so he gives a parable here and he's doing it to prepare the hearts and minds of the people for what's about to happen to him. This kingdom is not going to come immediately, at least not in the way they think. Right? And so he gives this parable, and it's a parable called the parable of the ten minas, sometimes called the parable of the pounds. But we'll just go ahead and read the whole parable here, and then we'll walk back through it. Start verse 12. Uh, Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. They said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. He said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So this is the parable of the ten minas. And of course, to our modern ears, this parable sounds very strange, right? Like, like there's so much happening here that is just so foreign to the way our world works, our society works today. Things like, like a king and a kingdom. Or like these things called minas. Or servants of the king. Or, or vengeance or justice maybe 
described as slaughter here. And so this sounds really weird to our ears, but but the story, this parable, actually would have been very familiar to Jesus' audience there in Jericho. Because there's a historical background to their location. And basically it was King Herod of Judea. He's also known as Herod the Great, right? He's, he's the one in charge around the birth of Jesus. He fell really ill and, and eventually dies because of, it, because of it all in the city of Jericho. Okay, so, so, so think about that. The city of Jericho had been the site of this major newsworthy event something probably most would have known about and certainly still would have remembered at the time of this parable. Herod, the king, died in our city. But what makes that story just so uh, especially important for us in understanding this parable is what happens after Herod's death. Concerning one of his sons, he had three sons. One of his sons was named Archelaus. Okay, And, and just very briefly... Even though Herod passed away, his father had passed away, it would be assumed that he would take the throne, right? Like he would ascend to his father's reign. But um, the only one who could actually make that official was Caesar, the emperor in Rome, okay? So the story is Archelaus can't just walk in and sit on the throne and say, hey, I'm in charge now. He has to actually make this long journey to go to Rome talk to Caesar who who will then make him official, make his reign official. And so he does that. Archelaus in history goes to Rome, but it turns out that there was actually a lot of opposition to him being in charge. Like the citizens didn't want him to rule over them. They didn't want him to be the next king. Some of his own family members even opposed him to Caesar. There was even a delegation of Jewish leaders who traveled all the way to Rome too to argue that Archelaus is not fit to lead. And so eventually Caesar decides to give Archelaus a chance to lead the kingdom. Um, So what happens is he returns, the king returns, and naturally he took vengeance on all those people who rebelled against his rule and reign. So this historical event, so tied to the city of Jericho, I mean, it seems to be the background of this parable because we see so many parallels, right? Again, Jesus, who's this master teacher, uses this historical event concerning the kingdom of Herod and his sons, again, which had significant ties to the city of Jericho to teach something about the kingdom of God. That's what parables typically did. They taught about the kingdom of God, and this is no different. Okay, so, so, so look again at verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, okay, so he, here's the parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Of course, this parable is not about Archelaus, but about Jesus. Really, like Jesus is the one who's being described as this nobleman who, who would leave to receive a kingdom, but who would eventually return. Again, by this point in Jesus' life and in ministry, this expectancy had grown that, that again, Jesus would bring this kingdom of God in, in all of its fullness, that he would do it immediately. In fact, again, the very next passage after this is our Palm Sunday passage when Jesus rides in on the colt right into Jerusalem and crowds are gathering around shouting Hosanna, 
waving palm branches around, which was a symbol of national victory. They thought he's here. The king is here. The kingdom has finally arrived. And so again, knowing all of this, Jesus is needing to prepare them for his departure. But even though he would leave, he would return one day. And again, Jesus would do this with his own disciples, those closest to him, over and over again, telling them, listen, I'm going to be leaving soon. I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm not going to be with you. But don't worry. Take heart. I'm going to come back. I promise I'm going to return as king. And so again, we're reminded of the reality of what we call this already but not yet kingdom of God. Right? That Jesus reigns now at the right hand of the Father over his kingdom, and yet this kingdom is not fully realized yet. It will be one day. In fact, the Bible teaches there will be a day when when the king returns and, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord, but that day is not yet. Right, And so this parable is offered to them there in Jericho and it's offered to us today to, to really offer instruction about what do we do in the meantime? Like what do we do while the king's away and we're awaiting his return? In other words, how are we to live under the reign of King Jesus while we await the arrival of King Jesus? Like what are we called to as servants of the king even while the king is away. Right? That, that's what this parable is about. So, so he continues. Verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. So in the parable, here's this king. And before leaving, he takes his ten of his servants and he gives ten minas to them. And a mino is a, a Greek coin. It, it equaled to about three months wages for for the average worker so so not a huge amount of money but not an insignificant amount either right so it's a little little amount that he's given to them to to manage but each servant gets one mina and the king says all right i want you to take that mina and i want you to invest in it or invest it while i'm away he says engage in business And this might remind you of of another parable that we've seen before. This is the parable of the talents. If you remember this, um, there's a lot of similarities here. In fact, just listen to the beginning of the parable of talents in Matthew 25. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Similarly, in this parable, the parable of the towns in Matthew 25, there's this wealthy man who's going to go on a journey, but, but while he's away, he entrusts servants with his property. And the key difference here is that, that in the parable of the talents, each servant gets a different amount. And it's all based on their ability. Like some's entrusted with more, some are entrusted with less. And again, there's a lot of similarities with this parable, but, but there's one key difference. In, in our parable in Luke 19, each servant gets the exact same amount of wealth to steward. Each one gets a mina. And I really think that this is key to understanding the parable of the ten minas. This parable is about faithfulness and not giftedness. 
that while the king is away, the servants are called to faithfulness, regardless of ability, regardless of what they've been entrusted. Right? But the question is, what are we expected to be faithful with? What's he entrusted each of us? And so we should ask, well, what is that thing that God has given to all of us, all of his people, in equal measure? In fact, most theologians identify here the gospel message. Right? Like every one of us has been saved by the message of the gospel. Every one of us has been called to now spread the gospel message to those around us. Uh, We're called to live out our faith Uh, live lives that have been changed by the same gospel within the spheres of influence we've been entrusted. The king says, here's your mina. Engage in business while I'm away. Kent Hughes, who's a pastor and author, he explained it this way. He said, each believer receives the same investment capital for his Christian life. We all have the good news of Jesus Christ and its marvelous effect in our lives. And we all have the same command to put this money to work until I come back. We must invest the investment Christ has made in us. We're to multiply our spiritual capital, invest the gospel, increase yield of the good news of salvation through Christ. Saying you've been changed by the gospel, you carry the gospel message, and now while the king's away, we engage in business with the gospel. So the challenging question here in this parable is simply, Are we faithful with the gospel? Are we faithful while the king's away? Are we faithful in living out our faith in our homes? Do we speak of Jesus and the gospel with our spouses and our children? Are we faithful in living out our our faith at our workplaces? Are we faithful to, to do what we can to see the good news of the gospel reach our city, reach the cities in our region, other cities in our country, And far beyond. Jesus has said, engage in business until I come. Because he is coming again, right? In fact, look at the next part of the parable. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you're to be over five cities. So, Here's two groups of people in the parable, aren't there? There's the citizens and there's the servants. The citizens are those who who live under the rule of the king, but they hate it. They hate the king. They have uh, no allegiance to him. They want nothing to do with him. They protest his rule. Like, Like their social media posts end with hashtag not my king. But then there's the servants, those that are loyal to the king, those who aim to serve the king, those who desire to do what the king desires to do in his rule and reign. And so in the parable, this king comes back and he goes to the servants and he wants to know, what did you do with the mina that I entrusted with you? And in the parable, this first one comes back and he offers a 1,000% return. 
The second comes at a 500% return. And the king is happy, of course. He says, well done, good servant. Faithful servant. He declares that because they were faithful in handling a small responsibility, they had proven they were reliable enough to handle even more responsibility in the kingdom. But then there's a third servant that we haven't got to. Before we get there, just know a few lessons here within these first few verses. Notice first that the servants speak as if the mina did the work and not them. Right? That first one says, uh, King, your mina made ten minas more. Your mina made five minas more. They speak as if that did the work and not them. And so it is with what we've been given to steward, isn't it? Like the gospel grows by its own power. Through the work of the Spirit, as as we're faithful to plant and water the gospel seed, the harvest comes, and not because of us, but because of the Lord. God is the one who brings the increase. We see that over and over throughout Scripture. And so we're called to simply be faithful to spread the gospel seed. Right, like faithful stewardship of the gospel is simply faithful sowing of the gospel. And as we do that, we, we trust that it will bring the return. But second, we need to catch this major lesson here that when the king returns, we will be held accountable for what we've done with what we have. And Paul talks about this, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to the church in Corinth. He says this in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. That the king is returning. That we will stand before him, just like in this parable. We have to give an account. Revelation chapter 22, very end of scripture. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Again, we'll, we'll all stand before Christ to give an account for how we manage or steward what he gave us in the gospel. It's a sobering thought, but it's one we need reminding of, isn't it? But let's continue. Let's see this third servant, verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to them, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? Okay, so first two servants, faithful. Third servant, not so much. He says, King, here's your mina back, the same one you gave me. Um, I just kind of tucked it away. Uh, I didn't really do anything with it. I, I just wanted to protect it and keep it safe. And, and, and he gives this reason. He's saying, I was afraid. I was afraid of you. I saw you as a severe king. But the king answers, and basically he's saying, yeah, I'm not buying that. Uh, because, listen, if you were really fearful of me, at the very least, you could have put it in the bank and earned interest. In other words, if you really were fearful of me, I mean, you would have done something. 
So this servant made excuses and notice that rather than being called a good servant, he's actually called a wicked servant. He's one who disobeys. He clearly didn't share the desire of the other servants to serve the king. He was serving himself by protecting himself. But the thing is, is he didn't understand the heart of the king. The king was ready to come and reward them. The king was ready to come and celebrate with them. The king was ready to expand and widen his servants' responsibilities as they proved that they were faithful. And so he does nothing with the mina. So look again at what the king does. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Okay, so so the king says, all right, take this mina that he did absolutely nothing with and and give it to the other servant. Let's just give it to the guy who who did the most or seemed to have done the most, who was very faithful. Which, by the way, if you ask someone to manage your funds, this is a totally reasonable thing to do, isn't it? Like if someone is mismanaging your funds or acts very apathetic to how your funds are doing, you're not just going to overlook it. You're going to take it away and say, no, I'm actually going to help. I'm going to give it to someone who's actually going to help me uh, and, and know what they're doing. Like, that's totally reasonable. But notice, the others complain. They're like, no, no, he already has 10 minas. Why is he getting more responsibility? Why is he getting that kind of privilege? They're saying, that's not fair. They're jealous. They're, they're envious that the king would reward this other servant this way. And so, so the king responds. Look at verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And really, this is the key verse of this passage. That understand that, that God entrusts greater responsibility to faithful people. Like, like in other words... Faithfulness with little is the prerequisite to responsibility over much. And this is such an important principle for us as Christians to understand, I think. Especially us who desire to serve. uh, Those of us who desire to serve under the king, to make an impact with our lives. Because I think what happens is oftentimes we we desire to have this uh, greater influence or a greater platform, or more responsibility. And so what happens is we end up kind of, we're tempted to become discontent with the ways that we're able to serve right now. Right? Or we ignore altogether the basic ways we should be serving right now. So for example, I remember when I was finishing Bible college, I was given an internship at my church, and I was pumped about it. I was so excited. It was the first time I really worked in a church. Um, I had a pretty decent part-time job that I actually really enjoyed, but I quit that in a heartbeat because I was excited to now work at the church office. Um, I was excited to learn. I was excited to be around the church staff, to see what the inner workings of a local church is like, what the office etiquette is like, what it's like to, you know, be in church ministry all week long. Um, and so I was really excited about it, but, but I became fairly disillusioned pretty quickly because I realized, or I began to feel like really I was just the maintenance guy. Again, I was the intern. That kind of comes with that title, doesn't it? In fact, we had this huge gym at our church, um, big basketball gym, and one of my weekly duties 
was to mop the gym floor, and I hated it. I mean, every time I did it, I, I just hated it. I didn't want to do it. And I had to do so many other things. Like, I felt like I was constantly changing light bulbs around the church. I felt like I was constantly setting up tables and chairs and then turning around just to take them down again. And it got to where I just did not look forward to going into the church each day. And I was disillusioned. And the reason was is because I, this young Bible college student who had grand aspirations to change the world with the gospel, I thought... I would be doing something I considered more important. And to tell you the truth, I wouldn't be able to tell you what that was then. I didn't know what that was, but I I certainly felt it wasn't mopping and setting up chairs. But I learned a really, really important lesson in that internship. That I was serving the church. Like I was serving my brothers and sisters in my church family. I was helping create a clean and orderly environment where people could meet and fellowship and worship and hear the taught word of God. And ultimately, I was serving the Lord even as I was mopping. But, but I was wrong in my attitudes because I thought I should have more responsibility than this. When, when really, I was just called to be faithful in the responsibilities that I was given in that season of life and ministry. And I think we all struggle with this at times, don't we? But this parable challenges our thinking. Like we shouldn't be asking, how can I gain more influence and responsibility without first asking, am I being faithful with the influence and responsibilities I already have? Again, so many people want want a larger voice. They want to change the world. They want to change evangelicalism. They want to change their local church. And so they clamor for more opportunities. And and I really think social media really has just accelerated this because, I mean, now anyone can create their own platform with this hopes of being some kind of influencer. And by the way, some people do that. And if they do it with the right heart and motivation, wonderful. God gives opportunities for that. But listen, before you set out to change the world or change the American church or, or our church, Can I just challenge you this morning to ask yourself first, am I loving my spouse well? Like, am I doing the best that I can to shepherd my kids well? Am I working hard in the position that I have now? And in so doing, being a witness to the gospel? Or or with church, am I a faithful part of this local body? Do I build other people up? Do I serve? Do I pray for this local body? I mean, again, do I do all of these things even when no one else can see but the Lord? Again, God says that faithfulness with little is the prerequisite to responsibility over much. And it's not that those things are little. I mean, certainly not. Our our marriages and our, our families, those are huge responsibilities and incredibly important. These are our first ministries. But we shouldn't be seeking more if we're not taking care of those things first. Are are we being faithful with the responsibilities we already have? One of my favorite quotes is by Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China. And he once said, a little thing is just a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. Now look at this last verse of the parable. 
Verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, this is what the king says, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Understand, the the king brought rewards, but he also brought judgment. He brought rewards to his faithful servants, but he brought judgment on his rebellious citizens. And obviously, this refers to the final judgment of the Lord on all those who reject him as king. This is a fair warning. The king's away, and so his judgment's delayed, but that won't always be true. He will come again, bringing reward and salvation and life, but he brings judgment as well. Let me make just a couple conclusions here. Again, Jesus is the king, we are his servants, and it's not the other way around. Jesus is the king, we're his servants, not the other way around. Again, in our flesh, it's very easy to treat God as our servant, right? Like in the ways we pray, in the ways we respond to life circumstances. Again, we treat him as our servant as if he answers to us. But it's the other way around, isn't it? I mean, we serve him. He's the king. But listen, that sounds maybe discouraging or oppressive or or sad maybe, but it's not. It's anything but those things. And the reason is because our king is good. Right? Like living under his reign, living under his rule brings blessing. And so we serve with joy, knowing this is the very reason we were created. Jesus is the king, we're his servants, and not the other way around. A second thing I would say is, Jesus is the king, and he will return. Again, Jesus, after his resurrection, ascends to the right hand of the Father, but he's promised to return one day, and so as his faithful servants, we wait. We have patience, and we engage in business until he returns. Again, if if you're older, and you've been a Christian a long time, it's easy to grow impatient because life doesn't get easier. The world doesn't, certainly doesn't seem to get better. And so it might be easy to think, when's he coming back? Is he ever coming back? Don't grow weary. The king's away, but he's promised to come back. The third, I would say that when Jesus the king returns again, he will bring with him rewards. Again, the greatest reward, of course, is, is life everlasting with him in the new creation. However, the Bible speaks uh, uh, to rewards for his faithful servants that will be given some kind of responsibility in the new creation. So again, be faithful to the king as you wait. Engage in business while he's gone. And then fourth again, when Jesus the king returns, he will bring with him judgment. In his first coming, we know that Jesus came in the form of a baby. Harmless unnoticed by the majority of the world. The Bible teaches his second coming will be just the opposite. He will come to put an end to death, sin, and Satan, as well as all of his followers. Again, there will be judgment. So again, the main point of this parable, parable of the ten minas, is to cause us to ask ourselves, will we be faithful with what God has given us in the gospel? Like, will we be diligent servants of the king until the king returns? Now, I know that this is an incredibly convicting passage for most of us who desire to serve the king. Because probably most of us feel, I'm not doing very much for the kingdom. Or, what little I am doing, 
I'm not doing it well. We all feel that way sometimes. Like we know, we don't talk about Jesus as much as we probably should. We, we aren't always the faithful, loving spouse we should be. We know that we aren't always the faithful, godly parents we're called to be. We know that we aren't always the faithful employees or employers or the faithful church members. We understand in moments of honest reflection, we admit, I don't feel like I've done very much for Christ and his kingdom or at least as much as we'd like or we feel like we should. Whether it's due to fear or apathy or a greater love for the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God, so often we turn our back on the call to be faithful servants. And the truth is, compared to what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, I mean, we have done very little. But listen, if that's how you feel today, let me encourage you. Listen, we ought to be determined to be faithful with the opportunities that God gives us. We want that. We should do that. But listen, also rest in the gospel and reflect on Christ's faithfulness as we recognize our unfaithfulness. The Westminster Confession of Faith, a great um, confession of the 17th uh, century, um, speaks to this so well. Uh, this is an incredibly encouraging paragraph. And, and this is what they wrote. This is in chapter 16. They wrote, Yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ their good works also are accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. What are they trying to say? They're trying to say, we're accepted in Christ, and so are our works, even though they're far from pure, and right. Again, determine to be faithful with every opportunity you're blessed with. But listen, when you recognize your inadequacy uh, or your total failure, which we're bound to do, remember that because of your repentant faith, you were found in the only truly faithful servant, Jesus Christ. And listen, not only has that made us accept our work acceptable for our king, but it's guarded us from the wrath of our king who is to come with judgment. Like, listen to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. This is the church at Thessalonica. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, it's scary to think of this coming judgment, especially, again, when terms like slaughter are used in the parable. However, there's good news here. We're delivered from the wrath to come through Jesus, the only truly faithful servant. And again, he did that by enduring God's wrath for us through the shedding of his blood on the cross. Again, Jesus, the faithful servant, took the punishment on behalf of us, the unfaithful servants. And even more than that, citizens who who did not want to live under the reign and rule of God at one time. Listen, that's what we celebrate when we observe communion, right? By eating the bread, we're we're remembering the the flesh that Jesus took on and and then laid down as a sacrifice on our behalf. By drinking the juice, we're remembering this shed blood which covers our sins as our perfect sacrifice. 
And that's what we're doing this morning. Again, observing the Lord's Supper is reserved for for those who have at one time seen their need for a Savior and and repented of their sin and turned in faith to Christ. So so if that's you, we welcome you to join us in observing the Lord's Supper. Uh, If not, uh, we would ask that you would wait and not join in. But but here's, let let me do this. I'm going to pray for us this morning. And and then you're welcome after I pray to to eat and drink the elements uh, anytime you'd like during our final two songs, okay? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, again, we're grateful for your word. Lord, what a blessing it is to us. God, that it gives us instruction. God, that it reveals you, your heart, your work through your son, Jesus. God, that it reveals us. Lord, we're reminded this morning, God, that that you are our king. God, that you sit on the throne over all things. Lord, that there's not a single thing or single person in the universe who does not exist under your reign. And so, Father, as we acknowledge you as king today, Lord, we acknowledge us as your servants. Lord, we're subject to you, not the other way around. And, Father, we're reminded this morning that you as the king, though you're away, Lord, one day you will return. And so, Father, we pray, God, would you help us to not grow weary as we wait? Father, I pray that you would guard our hearts from an apathy about your business, about your work. Lord, would you guard our hearts from indifference? Again, would you guard our hearts from, from a, a greater love of this kingdom, uh, of this world, more than a, a love for your kingdom, which is to come? Father, in the meantime, as we wait for you, God, would you help us be faithful? Would help us be faithful with what you've given us? God, help us be husbands and wives that lift you up in our homes. Father, help us be godly parents who speak of you and your goodness to our children. Father, help us be good employees and employers that we cultivate relationships with our colleagues to point them to you. God, by our ethic and our hard work, we point people to your goodness. Father, I pray as opportunities uh, come our way, Lord, help us be faithful to speak of the good news of the gospel. Father, Lord, we recognize that so oftentimes we don't do those things. God, we recognize our unfaithfulness, but Lord, this morning we also remember Jesus' faithfulness. Lord, the truly faithful servant who would live the life we could not live and go to the cross on our behalf to bear your wrath Uh, again, on our behalf, not because of what he's done, but because of what we've done. God, this morning we celebrate that. So Father, as we eat the bread and we drink the juice this morning, remind us once again of the body that you took on and laid down on our behalf. Lord, the blood that you shed and spilled to cover our sins. Father, we rejoice as a church body this morning in it. God, we pray, Lord, would you bless us now as we continue in worship as a church. In Jesus' name we pray.